Being a geek is all about being honest about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on a somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Being a geek is extremely liberating. The Broken Meeple, Episode 24, Sci-Fi. Today's episode is all about space technology and the future, beginning with first impressions of Warhammer 40k Conquest and the Battle of Kemble's Cascade. The discussion rant today is about apps in board games, whether we need them or whether they're an unnecessary hindrance, and then finally ending with my top 10 science fiction games. Welcome and whew, has it been a bit of a tiring week for me, I have got to say. Last weekend was mostly taken up with Board Game Extra's Demo Day that they hosted in the Highfield Church in Southampton. I highly recommend that if you have been on their website and had a look around, that you keep a close tab on their events listing and see whether they're doing another Demo Day in the future. They tend to do them twice a year. This time they did it twice in literally like three months because there was a lot of games coming out. But they're, they're very good. They're very good ways to just test out a few board games that you were tempted by and, of course, buy them there and then if you found them to be any good. Now, that was last weekend. This week has been a long one at work, and I mean a long one because I have been not only drained by how much work there's been at my job, but I've also been at a job interview to get a new tax job in the local area and, suffice to say, I got the job. I was offered it the same day, so I cannot wait tomorrow to give in my notice because I have had enough of my current job. It was fine for a while working as an accountant in a smaller firm, but now it's time to hit the big leagues. It's time to really move on up there into a decent tax manager focused job and, well, it's just new beginnings, isn't it? New beginnings for the future. And the word future is kind of prophetic for this episode because the whole concept of this one is science fiction. My first impressions, the discussion, and the top ten, they're all based on some form of sci-fi or technology or future, something that obviously isn't related purely just to fantasy, and obviously there's no historical elements, hopefully, in this episode. So let's kick off first with the first impressions, starting with Warhammer 40k. to start off with Warhammer 40k Conquest. This is the new LCG released by Fantasy Flight Games and much in the same way as all their other LCGs you can bet that this one is basically going to start with a core set and then expand into pack after pack after pack after pack for many years and decades and millennia to come. You just know it's going to happen. And, well, you'd be right. This one is no different. Already, before the base set was even released, there was at least three packs announced for the expansion to this game. And I don't even think one of them's been released yet. You know, so it's it's weird why they have to announce so many future packs. Why couldn't they have just put the cards in the base game? I don't know. But, oh well, publishers making money, I suppose. Cha-ching! But, getting back to the game. 
Warhammer 40k Conquest. This play this is a two-player only game, and you take control of one of seven different factions. You've got anything from Space Marines to Chaos Space Marines, Orcs, Tau, Imperial Guard, Eldar. It, there's a huge amount of variety in the base set, and I believe we're expected to see Necrons and Tyranids turn up at some point in the future. Now what happens is that you are battling over several different planet locations. Each of you has a commander in charge of your force. He's kind of like your main leader. He's a winning condition in the sense that if you kill your opponents, you automatically win. But otherwise, you are op you're battling out for territory control over these different planet locations. Each one has one of three different colored symbols on it. And if you collect three planets with the same symbol on it, you win the game. The game plays out turn by turn as each player deploys their specific units and commanders onto various planet locations, battle that out with any opposing forces, and opt for command struggle, which is effectively comparing the command icons on your units and seeing who has the most. Of course, a commander wins automatically. The game at first feels a bit like playing the old Star Wars Decipher card game. The locations are put horizontally face up on the table. You deploy your units underneath those locations. You have the command struggle, which is effectively comparing symbols against symbols on that planet, which reminds me a bit of the uh, force control mechanic from Star Wars, where you had to compare the number of uh, light saber icons versus the dark saber icons, if you remember that one right. And, of course, battling out is standard combat affair. You declare an attacker, they declare the, you declare the target, inflict damage, which either wounds it or kills it. Each unit's got special abilities, and this carries on back and forth until one player has achieved a winning condition. Now, this actually plays out quite fun, because in this game, the units of... Well, the, the factions, shall we say, feel very different each of them has their own playing style and their own, shall we say, shtick as to how they go. The Imperial Guard, for example, are very good at getting lots of little Guardsmen tokens out and just effectively swarming the area with all these really cheap Guardsmen, and they've got no qualms about sacrificing a Guardsman or two in order to boost up their officers. It's effectively the Commissioner pointing the guns at the Guardsman's head and shooting him in order to instill morale from the original game. Quite a funny concept. But then on top of that, you have the Space Marines, which are quite good at doing some area control whilst being able to take the brunt of damage. The Tau are very good with attachments. They like to bring out their stealth combat suits or their drones and plug little weapon attachments onto their Fire Warrior squads in order to make them really beefy. The Eldar is all about trickery, so they're good at exhausting or you know turning over other people's units and basically playing around with the field. And generally, that's the way it goes. Each faction is very different, and obviously you've got to get used to their play style. My only problem with this is that the decks you get in the starter box are very small. If you play with the starter decks, you're only losing about 30-odd cards, I think. I might be wrong on that, but we're talking like a very small number. And if you want to do a full deck, as in what you're supposed to do in this game, you have to combine two of them in order to make a full-sized mixed deck. Now, you can mix these factions. You don't have to play a sole faction. There's a little chart showing which faction will side with others. And for the most part, it's accurate, although there are some weird ones, like I believe the Orcs can ally with the Imperial Guard, which is a bit weird. Um, but, you know, I didn't think Orcs really allied with anyone. But that's a sort of minor quibble. The idea is that you could 
def- you could make a mixed deck in order to be- better your enemies. So there's a nice little deck building element there. But the problem is that there's not enough variety of units in the starter decks alone. There's very little to play with, so you only really get a teaser of what your army is capable of. And obviously there's the usual annoyance of three copies of this, two copies of that, one copy of that, like there was in Android Netrunner and Lord of the Rings, where suddenly you're wondering, oh great, have I now got to buy two or three core sets in order to get all the cards I want? So it's one of those things that's going to be a money sink if you're going to get into it. I don't know if it's something I'm going to want to invest all my money in unless I can find a lot of players in Hampshire that are willing to join me. Because the game itself plays out very well. It's fun. There is a lot to learn in terms of glossary uh, terminology in that. But then Android Netrunner had the same problem and we got around that okay, didn't we? But the problem with this is just that variety aspect. You're going to have to make do with the cards you've got for now and when you buy these packs you know that they're only going to cater for so many factions at once in terms of the number of cards each one will get a new commander and that's probably the best bit of the packs thinking oh i could use this chaos space marine commander or i could use this sorcerer commander instead and see how the deck plays differently but obviously the packs have to contend with seven different factions it's the same as with the android netrunner packs So if you're only going to focus on one faction, these packs are not going to be good value for money. But if you're going to make lots of decks, then obviously great. But then that's obviously a money sink in general, and do you really need that many decks? So I suppose it's really going to come down to whether you've got the players in the local area to play it with you. If you have, then go for it. It's a fun little game once you get through all the rules that there are. It's it's a simple game, but you just have to really get to the nitty-gritty for certain effects that might happen. So you might find yourself looking at the FAQ a few times just to get your head around it. But otherwise, it's a cool little game. It's just going to be a bit of a money sink. And for me, I'm going to wait and see how the packs improve the variety in the game because that's what the game's lacking so far. Yes, there's a variety of factions, but there isn't a variety of cards yet. So I'm going to just leave it to one side and see how things progress. Warhammer 40k Conquest. Next up we have the battle at Kemble's Cascade. This was basically a designer's method of trying to get those original R-type arcade shooter games that we used to play where you had a tiny little spaceship uh, going on a scrolling screen shooting lord knows how many different weapons against what seems like a smorgasbord of pellets and bullets and drones and everything coming at you from the opposite screen whilst playing lots of really cool 80 synth music. This is effectively the board game version of that, complete even with pretty much a scrolling screen. The way that the layout is done is that you have these trays that are put together and cards that are placed on them with various things like alien ships and turrets and special power-ups and black holes and other space phenomena, that kind of thing. And As you progress through the game, turn after turn, the top row comes into play and the bottom row fades out of play. It's like a scrolling screen. It's really cool how it captures the theme of those games, and that's the best thing about it. It does feel like one of those R-type shooters. You've got your little ship, you go around picking up, buying new weapons and powering up your ship, getting little bits and bobs that are scattered around the map, killing easy enemies and some bigger ones, until eventually you get to the final boss, beat him up, and then whoever's got the most victory points wins. 
Obviously you can shoot each other and there is a lot of that that happens in this game, of which doing so nets everybody else points, so you can imagine that you die a lot, but all you do is just respawn at the bottom of the map so it's not like you're eliminated from the game. Now, that's the best thing about the game, however it does have some problems. First up, it's very fiddly. To manoeuvre all the cards in those trays and constantly update the map turn after turn is quite a tiring job. On top of that, you've got sensor cards which dictate the initiative order, you've got the power-up cards, you've got the uh, tech cards, you know, the weapons you can buy and gadgets. There's a lot of components and a lot of things going on here, so it can get quite fiddly to manoeuvre, but the worst part is those trays. It, it works, but I just reckon that maybe for a little bit of extra cash they could have improved the quality of them, because they don't really slot together very well. You just put them together in a line and try and keep it that way. It would have been nice if they had some proper like thick sturdy trays that you could use that were like you know the same shape each one you didn't have to like take it apart and like maneuver it together or anything so there is an element of fiddliness to this game. On top of that there is a slight balance issue with some of the weapons. The gadgets that you can get are mostly useful although the generators that give you more energy, which is effectively your life, don't seem to be that particularly useful, and even the shields don't tend to get used that often either. The engines that make you move faster, they're okay up to a point, but it's not that useful to have it all maxed out. As for the weapons, now this is where the weird balance goes. There are a couple of weapons that really just don't really get used, and that's the lasers and the flamethrower. The flamethrower has got such a short range that using it is rarely going to be that easy to do when you're maneuvering around the map. The lasers allow you to take multiple shots, but as we find out in this game, it's not really taking multiple shots that's the answer, it's being able to do a lot of damage in one successive sweep. Now, the missiles have a blast radius and a little bit of damage, but the problem with the blast radius is that for some reason it only expands in one direction. Well, how many times have you had an explosion concentrate its blast radius in one direction, especially in space? Okay, yeah, I know we're talking vacuum in space, there's probably all sorts of other scientific things that are wrong with the game in that sense, but taking poetic license aside, why would the blast radius be restricted to one space? It doesn't make any sense. But there is a weapon in the game called the Gamma Ray, I think it's called. Gamma Beam, Gamma Ray, something like that. It is basically one giant laser beam that covers an entire column or row. And it just minces everything on the board. As once you get that upgraded to its highest level, you just absolutely decimate the field and the boss even. Some bits of the boss are impenetrable to certain weapons, but most of it isn't. So you can just park yourself up alongside and just go... And everything dies and you get loads of good stuff for it. Now when I played it, it was five players, it went on a bit long. I have to say, don't play it with five players ever again. Play it with four maximum, but I would say three players is a good sweet spot. But I could settle for four if you know what you're doing. Now I did win the game and I didn't use the Gamma Ray, but the only reason I won was because I must have got quite lucky with the timing in the last couple of turns because once we killed the boss far too early for what it should have been we just basically all went pvp on each other and it came down to basically timing of the turns as to who died when who got points when that kind of thing because there's a weird mechanic in this game where if you are off the board and somebody else dies you don't get any points for it and i remember being shafted for at least four points in one particular turn 
just because I happened to have died first, and it was not something I could help. So it's there's a a bit of randomness in this game, some stuff that's out of your control. But for a bit of light-hearted fun, it's an okay game. I would happily play it again, but with less players. But there are some balance issues that do need sorting, and just it is a bit fiddly for my liking. So it's not one that's going to make my collection. But I would happily sit down and play it again as maybe an event night. I'm not sure it's something I'd want to play on a gaming night where time is restricted, but if somebody invited me round and they wanted to play Battle at Kemble's Cascade, I'd probably sit down and play it. But I'd be hunting for that gamma ray pretty much right off the bat. So, Battle at Kemble's Cascade, give it a try if you're a fan of those shooters, just don't expect it to be the bee's knees. Now we're going to get on to a topic that is relatively controversial in the board gaming world and that is basically my rant I'm going to call these actually. I'm not going to call these discussion topics anymore because it's not really a discussion when you're by yourself. It's kind of weird when I phrase it like that. So I'm just going to call it rants. It's my rant. It's where I give my opinion, my two cents about a topic and take it or leave it is pretty much the way it goes. And today continuing with the whole sci-fi and technological theme we're talking about apps in board games. Now to begin with apps were mainly just ports of board games and they were great. It was great to play Agricola on your game, um, sorry it was good to play Agricola on your tablet for example on your smartphone and you had uh, Ticket to Ride and Small World have done really well, Carcassonne, there's lots of really cool board game apps. I'm not necessarily talking about them and I'm not talking necessarily about the scoring apps and the companion apps that we have for games because they're optional however I suppose some of them are quite handy because scoring apps don't really count you use them to score that's your choice Sentinels of the Multiverse has a companion app where you track hit points and status effects and it makes the game less fiddly I use this religiously when I played the card game myself so I would always you know thumbs up for putting the app with the game it makes an element of the game less fiddly than it already is and that will come into play slightly later but what's going on at the moment is that people are getting into very heated discussions about games such as XCOM the board game which is coming out next year and Alchemist which was released at Essen this year there are other examples that are going to come out in the future but these are the two hottest names on the book now what happens with these games is that the app is almost made a almost a sort of mandatory uh, mandatory setup requirement for the game in alchemists you use the app in order to tell what certain potion mixes are done and like to test out two ingredients and various other bits and XCOM, well, XCOM, the app is pretty much going to tell you how to play the game and set it up for you, so they're going to be pretty mandatory aspects of the game. Now some people are arguing against this by saying that, well, you know, why should we be forced to have an app for a game? You know, not everyone's going to be running around with smartphones there, some places don't like smartphones on the table, and I feel like I'm not getting the most value out of my game because not only am I paying this much for a game, but I'm also having to find and go through the hassle of getting this app, which is going to be free so it's hardly an extra cost for the game as well. 
Now, personally, I'm on the for argument for apps. I have no problem with apps being used in board games, for whatever reason, whether they're a mandatory part or whether they just make the game easier. The Sentinels in the Multiverse one, for example, makes the game so much easier to play. I already loved the game even when it was fiddly, but it, with the companion app, it managed to get my first ever 10 rating. You know, I really do think that the app is needed with the game. Now, there are other apps that can be used, like randomizers, but that's more just for people who are a bit indecisive, really, more than anything else. But I don't mind apps with games, because some people will argue, argue that you know, if you make the game use a smartphone app, oh, it's going to be unplayable in 10 to 20 years or something as technology advances. Well, no, not really. I mean, technology advances fast, but if it's got to a stage where we use a smartphone to play a board game, I'm pretty sure that whatever technology that comes out in the future, the games can adapt. I'm sure they'll be able to port it onto whatever technology just happens to be the new big thing right then, and then you'll just simply use that. Because in the end, it's only software that is powering the powering the game. It's a software application. The hardware doesn't matter. Whether it's your smartphone, your iPhone, your tablet, even you know, even some chunky piece of kit, whatever, I don't know, whatever's gonna come out in the near future, it's not gonna matter. They will just simply convert the software to the new hardware. And that's it. It's not gonna be difficult and it probably won't even cost a penny for those who already own the game. And even then, people will say, oh, you know, 10 to 20 years, it will be unplayable. For crying out loud, if you've got a game and you've owned it for 10, 20 years, chances are you got your money's worth out of that game before it went out of date. I mean, when you play computer games these days, do they last 10, 20 years before they go out of date? Yeah, right. God, blimey, I can't remember, I can't even count how many consoles I have gone through in my lifetime that have just updated and updated and gone obsolete within quick time. I mean, I just went to the tip this morning, actually, and I had to chuck away an old Nintendo Wii console. It was bought pretty much third-hand. I bought it for something like 30 quid, and it had a couple of games with it. Now, if I tried to sell that now, there is no way I would get even half that amount. I mean, who's actually playing a, not a Nintendo Wii anymore? Especially when we've got all the cool stuff like the PS4 and the PC and Xbox that's hosting all the mainstream games. And of course, you've got board games as well, and even the new uh, Nintendo Wii S, no, the Wii U, sorry, completely negates the point of a Nintendo Wii. So, you know, and that didn't take that many years before that became obsolete, so I think 10 years plus for a board game is pretty good going, considering you only pay 35 to £40 pound for the board game in the first place. So I don't quite get that as a big argument. Also, I... I mean, I just think that maybe it's been taken out of proportion because the apps make the game easier. So, so surely that should be a good thing. You know, do you want the game to be more fiddly? And most board games now are going to come out with options for if you don't have a smartphone. So Alchemist can be played without a smartphone. It's just obviously better with it. It's still your choice, though, whether you want to play it or not. And everyone's got a smartphone anyway. Who's wandering around without a tablet or a smartphone these days? I mean, come on. You don't have to have the latest smartphone to power the scene. You just need a smartphone with a camera facility. Well, I think pretty much every smartphone on the market has that. So you can hardly say that you don't have it. If your tabletop group has a policy of no smartphones at the table because obviously it's distracting and you want to play the game, 
Well, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that policy. I think you can have your smartphone there as long as you don't delay the game unnecessarily with it. But then if you're only using the smartphone to power the app, then that's it. That's nothing wrong with that. Just don't obviously have it on blazing you know, ringtone every time someone tries to call you. Maybe turn that element off and just keep the app. I'm sure that would work just fine. But, and, you know, some people argue, well, I like the physical aspect of games, so I want to touch and move all the components, and having an app will distance me from the game. I can see where you're coming from on that. There is an element of, shall we say, distance that has to apply for an app to replace physical components, but that's not to say that the game's just going to come bare bone and the app's going to do everything for you. I mean, take a look at Alchemist. Have you seen the components that are in that game? They are gorgeous. There's loads of components in that game. And you think the app has taken away anything from that? Nope, you've got plenty enough physical components to mess around with in that game. And I'm pretty sure XCOM is going to be a similar deal. So I don't think we've got too much to fear on that front. However, the biggest argument that I would say for the application in a board game is the fact that board games are getting far more complex and convoluted these days. Think back to the old days where we had games like Settlers of Catan, Ticket to Ride... Actually, no, Ticket to Ride is quite recent. Well, think Settlers of Catan. Settlers of Catan is an easy game to play and teach to people, and that's very old. And then in recent years, we've got uh, Ticket to Ride, like I mentioned. That's a very simple game, very easy rules. Carcassonne, another simple game, very easy rules. These are all gateway games. But nowadays, games are coming out with mass complex rules. I mean, have you seen Kanban, the uh, new automobile factory Euro game that's come out? Cool, blimey, you want complex games. Have a play of that. That is a brain burner and a half. But obviously there are going to be some ideas that designers come up with that are too complex and fiddly to incorporate into a fully analog game. You're going to have to get with the times in order to incorporate these ideas in if we're going to have innovation in the board gaming world. I mean, look at the last 20 years. Board games have come a long way. When I try to describe the hobby to people, when they've got it stuck in their mind that the only games that exist is Trivial Pursuit, Monopoly, and all that other trash, um, then it's hard to sort of say to them, look, seriously, take a look at a board game store and see what's out now. It's far more complex than that, and obviously far more fun. But we have to innovate somewhere, otherwise the board gaming market's going to get stagnant and we're not going to get any cool new games. After all, I'm nearing to the point now where my expedite shelf from Ikea is getting full up. When that happens, I'm going to have to start rotating games, because obviously I'm not buying another unit, I'm using that unit solely for games. And obviously other people, big reviewers, Tom Vassell, he has to rotate his games on a regular basis. So, sooner or later, a game has to come out, and if it's going to replace a game that's already out, it's got to have something that beats the old one. And... If they just stay on the same sort of technological level, then chances are you're never going to get that. You're going to have to innovate and you're going to have to expand. And I think apps is the way forward. Apps don't have to replace everything in the game. They just have to support a game. If you make the game pretty much bare bones and then have the app do everything, that's a different story. And obviously I wouldn't like that as much. But so far we're getting games where there's plenty of components, plenty of physical nature to get on with the game. And still an app to make the really complex aspect of it that's so much less fiddly and to be honest fiddliness and complexness in games can destroy a game if it's not handled correctly so if the app makes it better I say go for it I got no problem with it at all so that's my little rant 
Personally, I think applications in board games are fine. You just obviously have to leave something behind for the fingers to touch and manipulate because I like board game components as much as the next person. But I just think the hatred that's going for the apps in board game you know, mentality at the moment, I don't quite side with it. I can see where some people are coming from, but I think if we want this board game genre to expand and be innovative, we're going to have to allow for some technology to be incorporated and just help us along the way. And now we're going to move on to the top 10 list for this special episode and well, what do you expect? It's top 10 sci-fi games, science fiction. Now, the Dice Tower did a top 10 on science fiction a while back, I think around the start of the year, and whoa, they got a lot of shtick for that, particularly Sam Healy, because of the broad definitions of what constitutes science fiction. Now, I'm expecting I'm going to get a similar thing on this video, uh, sorry, this podcast, as to whether a game constitutes sci-fi or not. So let me just go into a brief roundup of what well, what I would consider sci-fi. I mean, obviously you've got the obvious space, but not every science fiction series has to be about space. There's also futuristic elements. There's also the definitions between reality and dimensions and dream states and things like that. Um, horrors can be uh, put into science fiction categories as well because I don't think... Well, some horrors can be set on their own, but there are a lot of horror films that could be considered sci-fi as well because of the way that they are run or the way that they link together. It depends on the background of the lore with regards to the story. Not every game has to be always about the future because even present day stuff can potentially be science fiction, although I probably wouldn't go as far as to include a game like Pandemic as science fiction, but I can see the arguments two and four, and if you look up the threads in relation to that YouTube video that the Dice Tower did, you can see a lot of talk and arguing about whether Pandemic classifies as science fiction. I'm on the camp that it doesn't, but even if I did, I would probably not include it on the top ten. Spoiler because it's, well, the theme doesn't really come out as strong. Now, in terms of putting together this top list, it's a case of not only thinking about what games I enjoy to play that are in the genre, but I also have to consider the theme as well. You know, it doesn't mean that the top game has oodles of theme. It doesn't have to mean that. But it can't just be an abstract game that happens to be about space. You know, it it ideally needs to have some element of theme brought out. Even if the theme is quite light, it needs to have something. So there will be a couple of games that aren't on my list as a result of that. Now, I will worry about honourable mentions later, but for now, let's get started. Top 10 science fiction games. God help me. Number 10 can only be described as Aliens the Board Game. Now, I'm going to be very strict on that. Aliens, the board game. Not the card game, the board game. You know, you'll see which one I'm not referring to on there. But I'm talking about level 7 Omega Protocol. This is pretty much 
Descent 2.0 if you made it about aliens. It's got the same style of tiles, you've got characters you control, you have the Overlord, or whatever they call it in level 7, I forget, I don't know, Dungeon Master equivalent anyway, who controls all the aliens, and you are a squad of marines going into the space station, completing objectives and missions, whilst trying to stave off the infestation. It's about as close to experiencing the second Aliens film as you can get, and I'm a big fan of that series. I consider Alien to be my top horror film of all time, because of just how great it was, and how it spawned effectively a legend of a you know of a style of monster and and characters but this is effectively aliens personified you can be your marines you're constantly dishing out hudson quotes on a regular basis game over man game over and it's a good lot of fun i don't own the game myself because a friend of mine already does and it's not one of those games that you really want everybody to be owning because obviously you know you're going to play it at somebody else's but i'm very tempted to pick it up at some point because it is a good amount of fun it only makes squeaks on the list though at number 10 because there are some clunkiness with the rules and it's one of those and you can't always it's not easy to get to the table but it's i don't know it's it squeaks in i like it but there are issues i do have with it as well but if you want aliens the board game this is a pretty good way to go about it so number 10 level 7 omega protocol number nine i would consider to be twilight imperium free super light and i mean super light compared to twilight imperium free this is light very light and that's empires of the void a game which a lot of people probably haven't heard of but it's a really cool it's it's basically i would call it a free x game you've got 4x which is the explore exploit exterminate and expand in this one you don't so much explore but you do expand you do exterminate and you certainly do exploit so i would consider it free x anyway you start off as a relatively generic force but you go off and fight other players you go explore planets and you try to either attack or diplomatize with the alien races and by doing so you can get special bonuses or you can even get unique ships that only you can create and use so you get to have a nice diverse force that's different from other players based on who you make friends with the map is absolutely gorgeous i just wish that they printed both sides of the tiles so you could have more variation in the maps but it's a really cool game. It does, however, need the expansion key to the universe to really shine, though, because there are some balancing issues in the game and some elements that needed improving in terms of fiddliness. So I certainly recommend that if you've got this game, print out the key to the universe expansion. It's well worth it. It really streamlines and balances the game out. You will notice it was on my top 10 essential expansions list, and I still stick by that. So, number nine, Empires of the Void. Number eight is a Euro game, set in space, so it's definitely a science fiction game. And even though it's a Euro game, it still has a reasonable element of theme. It's highly popular, and this was one of those games that really proved that Kickstarter could be successful and could really take off. And that's Alien Frontiers. Alien Frontiers is a dice game where you have a board with various stations that you can visit and the aim of the game is to get your colonies onto a newly discovered planet. It's very much set in that kind of retro uh, 60s sci-fi thing where all the colonies are set in domes and you know space travel is not particularly well advanced, that sort of thing. You know, really nice retro theme. 
and all the space stations around allow you to collect energy, collect resources, place colonies, build ships, that kind of thing, and the ships you have are your dice. You roll the dice, and depending on what you roll, it dictates where you can potentially place them. So you might be trying to get more alien tech cards, for example, or build more energy, but then obviously the dice are going to limit what you can do. Obviously build more ships, you've got more dice, and it's just a really cool Euro game of rolling dice, building ships, and setting colonies onto stations for special abilities. Really cool, and I reckon you should check it out if you have not already. That's number eight, Alien Frontiers. Number seven is a game where you basically take loads of different races, all these different factions, put them together, and just basically have a big brawl out in the middle of all these different zones and locations. It's probably a little bit weak as to whether you would consider it sci-fi or not, but there's lots of different alien races, there's a lot of effectively like the combinations of different races which you blatantly wouldn't get in a normal fiction story, and a lot of them you would never see in a fantasy story either. I'm talking about Smash Up. Smash Up has you taking everything from pirates to ninjas to aliens to Cthulhu horrors to Frankenstein's monsters to, well, soon we're going to have fairy princesses and pretty cats and all sorts of killer plants and ants and what else is there? I mean, shapeshifters and time travelers. There's all sorts. And you just basically bung two of the races together and you play the cards in a big all-out brawl for area control. Some may argue it's not sci-fi, but I think the fact that you combine all these races together in such weird and wonderful ways constitutes a science fiction element. I'm not going to mind if people sort of turn around and disagree on that point, because I can see why they would. But for me, I felt it, cons- I felt it was good sci- sci-fi for the genre, and like I say, it's at number 7. I do enjoy this game quite a bit. I have every expansion and I'm looking forward to the new uh, sort of like Pretty Please expansion or whatever they're calling it that's coming out soon next year, which is going to have like pretty cats and unicorns and it's, it's going to get weird from that point on, but I just find this quite a really funny game to play and it's nice and easy providing you ideally don't play it with four or more players. But that's a personal nitpick. So number 7, Smash Up. <laughs> Number six is a relatively new game in my collection, and now earlier I said Aliens the Board Game could be considered level seven Omega Protocol, and I was very strict that I said the board game, not the card game. This is Aliens the Card Game, effectively, and it's Legendary Encounters. This is a relatively new game brought out by Upper Deck as a spin-off to their Marvel Legendary series, which is a deck builder I really like, except this one is set in the Aliens universe, and here you have your avatar, which is effectively a role like Scout or Synthetic or uh, CEO or Gunner, that kind of thing. And your hero deck is replaced by all the different characters you have from the Alien films, from the first one all the way to Alien Resurrection. <sighs> Alien Resurrection. Um, but, and also you've got the enemies, all the different types of aliens that swarm you and try to kill you. You've got face huggers that can latch onto a player, and if you don't kill them fast enough, they'll get a chest burster in their deck, which once it appears, it bursts out of your chest and kills you. I just had that happen to be today, actually, when I was trying to do a solo mission with the Aliens movie, 
Uh, I mean, that's the cool thing. You get objectives in this game and you can either randomize them or you can tailor them so that they fit in par with the movies. And that's the best way I like to play it, keeping in line with the movies. Unfortunately, today I drew a bad hand after getting a face hugger latched onto my face and ended up nearly completed the game. I got to the last objective, but before the queen showed up, the chestburster decided to make an appearance. So, oh well, I died. But this is a cool game. It is a pain to set up and get in a decent order, I must admit. Upper deck, you really need to start thinking about what your games are like when you ship them off the shelves because it is getting annoying how you just bundle the cards together without any sort of order or structure and then expect everyone to sort of pick up the pieces. And or stop printing those boring backgrounds either and the boring dividers. Come on. Smash up Big Geeky Box. You can get such gorgeous dividers and a really good box for that game. Take note from them. Take note from AEG and start doing that with your own boxes. Okay, rant over. But the game itself is really cool. It just, you have to accept that you are going to have to spend a bit on sleeves, probably, to separate out the different decks. And I would ideally recommend printing out some dividers from Board Game Geek and sorting out your cards that way. I did the same for Marvel Legendary and Villains. So that, that small issue aside, once you've got it sorted so that you can get the game set up quick, Legendary Encounters is really cool and it does have a strong element of theme compared to Marvel Legendary because you are your own character and you get all the different aliens. The artwork is really gruesome. I mean, don't be warned when you're playing this with kids. There's a lot of graphic gore in the artwork, but it really does have a good element of tension. And when you throw in the multiplayer aspects like an alien player and evil and good agendas and stuff like that, it just really brings it out more. So, Legendary Encounters, my number six. Number five is the big one. And I mean the big one. You know, you cannot get much bigger than this game. That's Twilight Imperium 3. Empires of the Void made it onto the list a little bit lower because it, it's still a cool sci-fi game and it certainly is a lot easier to bring to the table than Twilight Imperium 3. But when Twilight Imperium 3 can come to the table and it has the expansions in it, it is a kick-ass game. It is a very good, epic, involved game. Yes, it has its flaws and the expansions solve some of these, but obviously the problem with having a seven, six to seven hour game is that it's hard to bring to the table and you really should pick your players. You really don't want anyone who's AP prone or a whining little baby in the game, but it's a really cool epic space game. You build your armada of ships. You can trade with other players. You've got politics. You've got techs that you can upgrade. And you can never do all the techs in one game. So you've got to tailor your race for that. Lots of different cool alien races to try. It's just a really awesome game. But it does have a stupidly long setup time. A stupidly long play time. And it's not a cheap game to buy and acquire and use. So it can't really make the top end of the list but i still think this is a really cool game when you can get it to the table so number five twilight imperium free number four is seven wonders in space aka among the stars among the stars is a really cool almost spin-off of seven wonders it's made by a different company but in Seven Wonders, you were building up a little civilization with resources and developing into science, military, culture, that kind of thing. With Among the Stars, you still have the same drafting mechanic like Seven Wonders, but you are building a space station. And not only do you have to 
tailor what you put in your space station for victory points but you also have a spatial element that you have to build your space station in a particular way in order to get power to various rooms and obviously gain the most points because where you place the room matters now i have not played seven wonders babble yet but currently among the stars beat seven wonders when you've got the ambassadors in there and for the fact you have the spatial element that's my opinion seven wonders babble though could switch it round so we'll have to see what that's like when i get a copy but for now among the stars is a really cool sci-fi game the artwork is some of the most gorgeous futuristic sci-fi artwork i have ever seen in a board game i i don't know who the artist is and i'm sorry that i can't credit him right here but my god whoever did the artwork for this game deserves an award it looks gorgeous and it really sucks you into the theme of the game of building a space station because when you build your space station it just looks the bomb it looks the business it really cool artwork but it's not just the artwork the gameplay is solid too i recommend not playing with more than four players if you can help it for time purposes but it still works fine with more than four players it's just i think four is a max you should go with but if you enjoy Seven Wonders and you want a little bit extra thought into the game, Among the Stars is solid for a secondary choice. That's my number four. Number three is all about weird aliens negotiating to conquer enemy planets and ally with each other in combat or stab them in the back whenever necessary. Negotiations may be useful, but they could also be futile against the wrong player. That is Cosmic Encounter. Cosmic Encounter has all the players with a unique alien race with a special ability trying to get five enemy territories in their, well, five enemy colonies in their system. By doing this, you are playing attack cards versus a particular player at each moment, and you can choose whether to invite allies to your side, and the opponent can do as well. But of course, your cards are put down in secret, so you don't know whether you actually are going to try and attack, or whether you can try and negotiate a negotiation, and so put a colony on each other's planet. But the abilities are all really wacky and fun. The backstabbing and the bluffing aspect is really strong in this game. And there's a great deal of negotiation between all the players as to which races they want to help out. It feels very sci-fi. I mean, the combat is a little abstract. I will give it that. But you do have, from the expansions, lots of cool little roles you can do, like hazards that influence the game at a particular time, and lots of different rewards. So better card, better abilities, that sort of thing. But what really makes it is the negotiation and bluffing between the players and the special abilities of the aliens. You will never play the same game twice. It is physically impossible. There are so many aliens for this game now, it is ridiculous. But at least it means that you're going to have a game that is going to last years. Bear in mind, this game was invented in the 70s. Trust me, this game will last. If you haven't tried it, I urge you to try it and get into the theme of it. That's number three, Cosmic Encounter. Number two doesn't involve space at all. Well, that could be a lie. I would say the recent cycle has ventured more into space, but it certainly didn't start off that way. This is more about hacking and technology and computer programming and evil, like corporations and hackers sending off against them, Matrix and stuff like that. This is Android Netrunner. It's an LCG brought up by Fantasy Flight, and it is very good game. I mean, it is a very good game. It's... A difficult one to learn at first, there's a fair few rules and you have to get over the terminology that, you know, your draw deck isn't simply called your draw deck, it's called your 
R and research and development lab or something. And there's a little bit of a learning curve to really getting good at the game. But you can buy the core set and have a really solid time with this. And when you start getting into the packs, there's all sorts of different decks that you can build. But the game is just, it really brings out the theme very strongly. Because when you're playing the runner or the corporation, you're playing a completely different game every time. And if you're playing a different faction, you're playing a completely different style of game to what you would do with another faction. So there's a huge amount of variation in there. And there's a great deal of bluffing. I mean, I really enjoy playing the corporation in this game. Because you can have servers with hidden defenses and assets and traps. And your opponent doesn't know whether you've laid something nasty down there. And he's like, oh, should I go and attack that server? And you can bait him or you can bait him into a trap or try and hush him away from a server that's actually got something you want that's valuable in there. There's a lot of cool sort of banter between the players in these games. It's very tactical. There's a good element of theme in here. I really like this game. It's a bit of a money sink if you want to get all the cards, but then that's your choice. I made my choice and, well, I haven't really got much else to spend the money on. So, yeah, there you go, really. But you do not have to go out and buy every single pack. It is not necessary and... If you've heard about Fantasy Flight's recent move to start recycling old cycles by disregarding them from tournament play, Netrunner's got a long time before it's going to hit its eighth cycle because we're only just finishing the third cycle. In fact, we might have one more pack left in the third cycle, so yeah, it's going to be a while, so don't worry about that. Number two, Android Netrunner. Great game. And my number one, oh boy, this is probably going to get me a lot of flack. It got Sam Healy a lot of flack, and I don't think I'll be any different. In fact, I think I'll get more flack because I'm obviously not as famous as Sam Healy. But I consider this to be science fiction because the author of the mythos that this is based on considers it himself to be sci-fi and when you look at the Lovecraftian lore that goes behind this game there is certainly a lot of elements of realities and dimensions and the fact that the Elder Gods are actually hyper-intelligent aliens that we just have no comprehension of as humans you know rather than the typical oh an alien race is here right let's send shuttles up and blow them apart this is like an alien race that you just cannot fight or you cannot deal with and to try and comprehend their realm and realities is just send yourself insane yes it's technically a horror game yes but i feel that it overlaps enough with sci-fi to be considered sci-fi horror and i am putting arkham horror at the top of my list because of that now you could phase this in with Eldritch Horror as well because both are great games. My reason for putting Arkham rather than Eldritch is because I think Arkham brings out the theme of the Cthulhu Mythos and all the sci-fi elements more so than Eldritch Horror. I think Eldritch Horror feels more like a sort of horror adventure game because of its worldwide scope and the fact that it only has so many ancient gods in it. But in Arkham Horror, with the expansions, you've got loads of different sci-fi elements thrown in there from the reality and dimension and dream state front. You've got all the different Elder Guards, and if you read about them, there is a lot of like discussion about the alien side of them and the sci-fi side of it. I mean, yes, some people could consider it to be fantasy as well. And like I say, this is 
one that's going to get a lot of flack, I think, for putting it on the list because some people will agree that it's sci-fi and some people won't. And that's fine. Discuss it all you like in the comments. I'm happy for that. But personally, I think that there's enough of an element to make this a sci-fi horror rather than a fantasy horror. And if you want to put horror in its own genre that sci-fi can't fit, that's fine by me. But I think there's a lot of horror films that could be considered fantasy or sci-fi. So... I mean, Event Horizon. Event Horizon is definitely science fiction, but it's also a horror. So I think they overlap in many ways. And for this one, I think Arkham Horror brings it out better than Eldritch theme-wise. I'm not saying that Arkham Horror is the better game than Eldritch. I still haven't really decided on that. I think I'm leaning more towards Arkham purely because of the immersion and theme factor and the fact that you have a lot of expansions but Eldritch Horror is still solid and fantastic and it's in my collection and it's going to stay so I've got no problems with that either but number one for me I love Arkham Horror every time I play this game it's always a great deal I get into the role play I read out the encounter cards properly I just get immersed in the game so badly there's tons of variation that you will never play the same game twice it's just Really, really cool. Yes, there's a little few... Well, there's a few clunky rules you've got to get around, but once you've got that in your system, brilliant. Love the game. It's my number one sci-fi game. Always love this. I just wish I could get it to the table more often with certain players. That's Arkham Horror, my number one sci-fi game of all time. So that's my top 10 science fiction games and that wraps up this episode. I don't have many events planned in the gaming world for Christmas. I will be going back home for Christmas so I suspect I'll get to play some gateway games with the family, probably like Ticket to Ride and Dixit. Whether I'll be able to get some more heavy games with my brother is another question. He does have Sid Meier's Civilization, the board game at home. However, whether he still wants that I don't know because let's face it, I'm the only one who can play that game with him. And I think it's such a cool board game, I would love to have it in my collection, so I might try and see if I can buy it off him, and hopefully that will go down well. But other than that, I'm just going to continue playing board games. I'm getting more reviews out on the blog, because I'm not only doing reviews for myself, but I'm also doing guest reviews for GamesQuest, which is my equivalent of a friendly local gaming store, although you could probably call it friendly local gaming website near me and they visit our Portsmouth on boards club on a regular basis to sell their games and obviously play games but I do a lot of guest reviews for them I've already submitted Mythotopia and Imperial Settlers I think we're just waiting for Imperial Settlers to get uploaded but it's in the bag and more games that are going to come from that include Doodle City and Hyperborea and possibly other really cool releases from Essen but we'll see how that pans out. But it does mean that I'm certainly getting heavy into the review mode. As for the YouTube channel, yes, the YouTube channel has been on standstill because I just physically can't do all those videos in terms of time. However, I am looking at alternative ways to revamp the channel because as much as I enjoyed doing the videos, it was difficult to set them up. I've had to get rid of the camera equipment. I'm still trying to sell some of it off because there's just no way I can do it feasibly in my flat. It's just not the right setup. However, I know that you can do iPad reviews by linking it to your PC screen and I see that a lot of short reviews are becoming very popular where they only take about five minutes or so. 
Now, I haven't got the means to have the camera facing me and just talk for five minutes because I don't have a webcam that's any good. The room where my PC is is really bland and horrible, so you wouldn't really want to be in there anyway. And I don't really have the time and equipment to set up in my gaming area where I can do that sort of thing. However, I am considering an idea where I do a really short review, but with photo stills from the game itself of game and components, etc. And maybe a few little parody photos and gimmicks thrown in there for good measure, where I literally just give a quick five minute review about the game. I don't talk for ages about how you play it. I don't waffle on about, you know, all sorts of unnecessary content. I just give a brief summary of why I chose to look into this game, what I think of it, and then I let you guys decide and hopefully it will help. Those videos could be done much quicker and much like the podcast, I could record it using my headset and just do it on the PC screen. So there is some potentialness for the YouTube channel to come back into full swing, but we'll see how that pans out. For now, I need to think very hard about my uh, job side of things because I have handed in my notice to my current job and started. I'm starting a new job in January for a nice prestigious uh, top 50 plus 50 firm in the accountancy world, and it's going to be a well. It's going to be a challenge. I can certainly say that, and I'm not going to be able to like carry on with reviews during work hours and stuff like that very easily. So I'm going to have to really balance my time out between playing games, reviewing games, and obviously doing well at my new job. And of course, having a girlfriend, that always sucks up a lot of time, as I'm sure a lot of you know, especially when they are not gamers in themselves. So, a lot's happening for me over the next few months, but I'll keep doing the monthly podcast. Sorry, this one took a long time to bring out. I was delayed. I had my parents visiting one weekend, and I've had to do some catch up time with the girlfriend as well so there's been a lot going on but I will still try and keep to the monthly format the reviews are still coming and who knows maybe the YouTube channel will come back it may not be over yet well I'm going to sign off now time for me to hit the gym and edit this podcast shortly after so for now that's it for me carry on playing games and I'll catch you next time find out more about board games and the Broken Meeple in general, you can visit one of the three main avenues we have online. First up, there is the blog itself on www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. You can also find the Broken Meeple on Facebook. Please come and like the page and share your thoughts with me. And on Twitter, you can find me at the Broken Meeple. 